Live from Waco, Texas, it's FNO with your hosts, Rob Beller and Lee Boyd. We are here in the world headquarters of 470 Claims, where I have the honor and privilege of being this week. We are happy to have you here today, Rob. It's great to be in Waco. Although I must say, it's not a very Waco kind of day outside. No, a little more cloudy, a little humid and foggy. Yeah, it's uh, it's wintry outside today. It is. In November. Well, today's huge. Very huge. Big day. Very big day. Big day. Big, big day. Why is it a big day, Lee? Because we have the godfather of Insured Tech on our podcast today. The godfather. The godfather. The godfather. That's awesome. That's right. The man, the myth, the legend, the one and only Caribou Honig is going to join our podcast today. Wow. Right. For those of you who don't know Caribou, you may have heard of or have seen Insured Tech ITC in Las Vegas over the past year or two. It's really one of the leading Insured Tech conferences for our industry. And he is one of the co-founders of that conference. An amazing feat, an amazing accomplishment that they've been able to do in the last three years and what they've been able to achieve. And it really comes out of his vision and his brilliance. He's a super interesting guy. And we've had the opportunity to talk to him a few times. And for a little silly little podcast like ours to have the opportunity to speak to somebody of his stature, we're really very lucky. But that speaks to the kind of guy he is. Right. Very willing and generous. Uh, he's always, uh, he said that, you know, he would rather say yes than no yeah. whenever possible. Right, right. And he wants to be kind and he wants to be nice. And this is a perfect example. And so we were really fortunate to have him with us in our virtual studio today and to have a great conversation. Very excited to have him on. But really what our goal today is, and our goal in this first season of podcasts that we've published, is to cap with Caribou to capture what InsureTech is, what it fundamentally is. And when you listen to the interview today, keep in mind that Caribou comes from a VC and InsureTech founder perspective. Right, right. He has gotten to know a lot of startup companies, a lot of larger companies who are entering into the entrance market. He also brings a lot of information from fintech, from the financial technology, and he'll be able to talk about the differences in fintech and insurtech mm -hmm. to really bring the whole perspective around. Right. So he's uh, had a great background. He's invested in a lot of insurtech companies and fintech companies and uh, seen how they've evolved their roadmaps as the markets have evolved. So he has a great perspective. And I think it's really obvious that he's a super smart guy. And this is, like we said, this is part of our series to kind of set the stage for our listeners. What is InsureTech? How is it defined? And what are the various parts of it? And today we get the perspective of a VC, a founder, and also maybe the most serious mover and shaker in the industry. Right, right. And so here we go. Without further ado, our capable assistant will cue us up and get us started our interview with Caribou Honig. 
Good day, everybody. We're coming to you today from Waco, Texas, from the headquarters of 470. It's very exciting for me to be able to be in our home office today. And like we said in the introduction, we have an incredibly special guest that we are super excited to have with us and super excited that he agreed to join us. <laughs> Because uh, there would have been every reason for him not to do that, but uh, but he's a generous man, obviously. And like we discussed, our goal in our first few episodes is to set the stage of InsureTech, what it is, what it was, and what it will be. And again, we're claims people, so we're coming at it from a claims perspective. But it's obviously a much broader topic and a much broader field than just claims, but uh, let's bring them in and welcome our guest, Caribou Honig. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me here with you. Good morning, Caribou. We are honored to have you with us. We know that you are kind of a, you're kind of a big shot in this field, I have to say. Uh, we, we found a quote where somebody called you the godfather of InsureTech. Well, you're making me blush, and fear not, my wife and kids will make sure that uh, <laughs> I don't feel too much like a big deal too often. Uh -huh. um, I certainly still do the dishes, but uh, no, it's it's great to be here. And you know, the whole Godfather of InsureTech thing is funny. I tried to figure out where that came from, and I've narrowed it down to one of three possibilities. Um, so one is, you know, I just I had I guess a little bit of insight that something really interesting around InsureTech was about to happen had this sort of visibility into it a few years ago and so you know played around uh, reasonably early in the history of insuretech maybe that's it i think um second possibility is that I, I really do try to be generous wherever i can in terms of being helpful to people right if i can dole out little favors often taking the form of i happen to know a person over here and i know a person over there and I try to connect them where I can. Uh, maybe that's where it comes from. Most likely, though, is you know I, I do uh, have a, a tendency to wear this uh, nice fedora, uh, particularly when I'm talking uh, on stage with folks, and I think that might sort of give the, the little bit of the impression around the the old time uh, Godfather. So I think it's just a hat. That actually was going to be like the first question: What's with the hat? Uh, well, look, uh, for those who haven't seen me, I am quite bald, um, uh, again, particularly as my teenage boys like to remind me. And, you know, it sort of starts with uh, wearing a, a good hat like a fedora is really actually important when it's hot and sunny outside to make sure you, you don't get too sunburned on the noggin. And when it's cold outside to make sure that you don't freeze. So it started as a practical matter. And then... Um, at the first InsureTech Connect conference just over two years ago, when I was up on stage, I was like, well, you know, I got my hat with me. Maybe it'd be fun if I uh, go up on stage and just sort of wear the hat and, you know, the sort of bright lights. And I don't want people to get blinded off of my bald noggin there. So uh, it just sort of was, again, sort of useful and, and a bit of fun. And then I realized as I was walking through the hallways that people would be able to spot me, right, if they wanted to come up and uh, talk with me. So it turned out to make me easier to find in a crowd. And when I'm wandering around in sure tech crowds, that's actually a pretty good thing. Yeah, I had that experience with you at InsureTech this year that uh, you were easy to spot. So obviously we know you 
as one of the co-founders, is that correct, of InsureTech Connect? Yes, that's right, along with Jay Weintraub. Right. So Leon, that's how Lee and I have come to understand who you are. But you go back further than that. You didn't just pop up on the scene all of a sudden and, and have a great idea to start a conference. There's a whole story that led up to that. We understand that you were at Capital One for a long time, and that's kind of where your the genesis of how you arrived where you are today started. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I, uh, I graduated uh, from grad school, University of Virginia, back in 96, joined Capital One, um, which was really uh, you know the beginning of its heyday there as a real uh, transformative company in the, the lending business. Really, it was a business transforming the industry through the power of data. And I was drawn to that. I was a former physics major back in college, loved sort of data-driven businesses, got the chance to really cut my teeth on applying data strategies across uh, different parts of the business, some underwriting, some operations, a lot of data-driven marketing. Had a real great run of it uh, for 10 years. Left in 2006, took a year off, watched Netflix, played with my kids, listened to the universe. Funny thing now is if you, based on my leaving at the time and how I did, if you Google stupid career decision, <laughs> I am the number one result. Um, I'm the, the top organic result. Uh, sometimes if you do the image search, you come up with a, a picture of me too when you, when you look for a stupid career decision. So I like to say I am the face of a stupid career decision. So I left in 2006, took the year off, uh, reconnected with a couple other former Capital One executives, and we formed a boutique venture capital firm called QED Investors, very focused on investing in data-driven companies, a lot in the marketing side, a lot in fintech, and also did uh, a handful in insurtech. Great firm that we created. I think it'll be a, a VC firm that stands the test of time. As I uh, as we grew, I started to point my own focus specifically at uh, the insure tech space. Sort of felt like around 2014, 2015. So okay, something's gonna be happening here soon. It reminded us a lot of what we were seeing in the the banking side over in fintech. And so uh, as I started to put my focus there. I looked around for a conference to go to where I'd be able to talk to the entrepreneurs and the investors in the sector and the you know, innovation executives from within the, the sector. And I couldn't really find anything. So sort of see a need, uh, fill a need. I, um, I kind of needed this conference to exist for my day job. So I said, well, you know, maybe I should try to create it. Uh, luckily, got connected with Jay Weintraub and his team who actually know what they're doing. And, and collectively, we... Uh, we launched InsureTech Connect, and you know it was really designed for a focus group of one, I like to say. It was designed for what I needed for my job, and we just sort of hoped that there'd be other people who also had a similar interest and in, in need. So you, need, <laughs> you needed to create a conference for yourself to go to. Exactly. Uh -huh. and, and now the good thing about that is, like, I only want to be involved in creating a conference that I want to go to. And, you know, the truth is, not every conference out there is you know, all that exciting and compelling and interesting to attend. I've been to a few conferences over my career that I, at the end of them said, why did I go to that? Right. Um, yeah. I think we've all had, we've all had that experience. Yeah. So we, we really try to make it not just interesting, but high energy. And particularly I like to describe it as, you know, a place where business gets done. Like nothing makes us happier than when we hear some anecdote from, an investor or an entrepreneur or an industry executive say, I went to your conference and, you know, in four hours, we got three meetings done that actually resulted in a commercial deal or an investment, things like that. Like that 
is the power there. That's what we're trying to, to solve for rather than, you know, just having it be uh, intellectually interesting and educational. There's value there too, but we want it to ultimately lead to business getting done for people. Well, Caribou, yeah, you know, I've been to that conference twice now, and it is a fantastic conference that you can get so much done and meet so many different people. And a lot of the discussion around that conference is a comparison between fintech and insurtech. A lot of people are comparing insurtech to fintech, which is more of the financial technology side versus the insurance technology side. Coming from Capital One and being involved in a lot of that, I'm curious if maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of information on the difference in fintech and insure tech and maybe where insure tech is in comparison to fintech. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even within like the banking world, there's different parts of the evolution there. So I, I would actually say that like the farthest back in terms of quote fintech might be the payments sector, right? Think about PayPal, right? It's one of the granddaddies there. Uh, and then in more recent times, call it, you know, coming out of the ashes of 2008, you really had the emergence of the lending side of fintech uh, gain prominence. And, you know, in general, it has been said that the the banks are five to eight years ahead of insurance companies typically in the adoption of technology. Now, that's always open for debate, of course, but I do think that the consumer web, right, the rise of the consumer web was significant, a powerful enough force to drive some real transformation in the banking industry. And you see that with, you know, on multiple fronts, but you see that with uh, just the amount of interaction that consumers have with their bank or banking services on the web. Think about bill pay, right, which is really now part of the norm. Think about how you comparison shop for maybe a credit card, right, on a place like Credit Karma, right, helping you get easy access to your credit score and then to, to good offers. And disclosure, you know, QD, myself, we're investors in Credit Karma, so I'm partial to that company. But you saw that the web being sufficient there, right, to be a transformative force on banking. And I don't think that the web has actually been sufficient on its own to really be transformative in the insurance industry. You know, of course, on the margins, it changes things a little bit here and there. But I actually think that what's different today, right, the reason that, you know, around 2016, you start to see insure tech as a thing, is that there's now a variety of irresistible forces all coming to bear. There's a lot of water behind the dam of technology to actually enable and catalyze innovation in insurance, right? So it's it's still the consumer web, right, is an important thing, but you also have obviously the you know great penetration of smartphones and what that opens up, right, and sort of Internet of Things as a, a side impact with that. You have the maturity of cloud computing, as an example, which is now, I think, sort of proven to be uh, you know, secure enough and capable enough uh, and sort of all, all sorts of supporting infrastructure. You've got APIs, right, as a very established sort of approach to building out a uh, an infrastructure. You've got drones, right, which if you look five years ago, you know, much more expensive, much harder to really deploy. But now you've got drones actually hitting, I think, the mainstream of the insurance world. 
You're starting to get augmented reality kind of capabilities. Things as simple as, you know, the sort of an app for measuring things through your phone. So I think that there is a, a whole range of technologies now that have more than nudged the insurance, insurance industry, startups and incumbents alike, to say, yeah, there's so much opportunity here in embracing new technologies that uh, we, we kind of have to for the sake of both playing offense and defense. You know, Caribou, you were talking just a moment ago about the programmable web and uh, APIs, and we read where APIs are really becoming one of your latest obsessions. And we're talking about satellite imagery. We're talking about drones. We're talking about measurement devices from your smartphone, such as Hover and Planner. Uh, we're talking about all these things. Can you tell us a little bit about how you envision APIs and for our listeners, application programming interfaces these are connections from individual companies or sources to another to provide a larger amount of data in a quicker span. Is there a way you could talk to our, our listeners a little bit about how you envision APIs changing the insured tech market? Sure. I'm happy to. It's, it's a big question. So I'll try to boil it down into the most important. So you've given a good working definition of an API there. Right? And really what an API is doing is it's, it's enabling some sort of functionality, some capability, whether it's data or you know, making something happen or do it, calling the web or, or whatever. It's some sort of functionality that becomes modular. Right? You know, there's, uh, you can have claims processing right, happen over an API. Right? You can get a, a quote on an insurance policy over API. Like I say, it's, it's just enabling the modularity right, of some function. Right. And what that really means, why that's so important for insurance, industries sort of swing back and forth on a pendulum between favoring an end-to-end -end solution, right, some sort where the benefits of the whole value chain being enabled by one core sort of technology system swings to sometimes the other way, to where you have best-in-class point solutions, right? The very best capability for getting a quote or the very best capability for getting this piece of data or, or what have you. And, you know, typically industries sort of have to make a choice. Do I want to get the benefits of the integration of a single system or do I want to get the benefits of trying to cobble together a whole bunch of the very best point solutions, right? but I lose the benefit of true integration. And what APIs as a, an architecture really enable is to avoid having to make that choice. Right? If my technology backbone right, is built focused on APIs, then I can actually create integration along that backbone and yet call the best-in-class point solution available through each API. So on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed by APIs because I don't have to make the, the hard choice, the hard trade-off between best-in-class versus integrated. But the other reason that it's so interesting is that once you start to design your business around API approach, it actually becomes a business strategy, not a technology strategy. I, I like to say APIs are actually a business strategy masquerading as a tech strategy. Because once you make your capabilities available by API, and once you start to leverage 
whatever APIs are available for something you're trying to accomplish, it exposes each thing that you do to market forces. It means that you don't actually have to do the things that you are not best in the world at. You can start to call other people's functionality for that. And if you think you're the best in the world at it, but you're not sure, right, or you want to test that, then again, you can sort of let the, your internal group compete against the outside world, right? And you see this. Amazon is really the, the leader in this business strategy of building around APIs, right? Amazon Web Services, the leader in you know, essentially cloud computing out there, right, was originally their solution for serving their own internal needs. And then they made it available by API, and they made it available to the outside world. So then companies like Netflix, right, which on the one hand is a competitor with Amazon, right, facing consumer, Netflix ended up using Amazon's web services through Amazon's API. And that's because Netflix said, well, we can do it ourselves, or we can use Amazon's web services, and that's what, and they're better at it than we are, and our, we're not going to build our core competence at Netflix around running a big data service. We're going to build it around the content and distribution and so on. So I think that it's profound because it exposes market forces to every part of the value chain, internal and external. Caribou, you bring up a great point there. A lot of times in the tech, we see companies say, I have to make it. I have to make this product. I have to make this technology. I cannot use any competitor's technology. However, here you're showing that Netflix is using a competitor's technology to better their own product, and they saw value in that. And that's an issue that we have a lot. People and companies spend so much time creating their own technologies for a limited scale whenever they could get a much better product if they just branched out. That's very interesting to think about. And I want to talk a little here about the APIs and in a software and company that you have currently joined as board of directors. And that would be in, that was in 2018. Here you join the board of directors of the Tomorrow app or tomorrow.me. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So on that, I was actually at the uh, insured tech convention whenever they first released this a year or so ago, and it was a very interesting app. And I, I'm curious if maybe you can talk a little bit about that, you know, maybe to both Rob and I. So I'm a 35-year-old husband and dad of three children. Rob is in the 60s, and he, he now has grandchildren. How would this app benefit myself and then also benefit Rob at the same time? Yeah. So there is a, a macro trend, right, where technology can be deflationary, right, in a good way. Technology can replace sort of the expensive part of human labor on some things, right, and that opens up new business models. So in this case, right, when you think about, okay, I, I need a will, or maybe I need a will, I don't really want to have to contemplate that, but maybe I should. One of the barriers for people to create a will is, well, I think it's going to be expensive and take some time to do, and I got to make an appointment with a lawyer and so on. And what tomorrow said is, look, while there are certainly some cases where you absolutely need a lawyer right, to make a will or a trust, um, there are some cases where you don't. And we can provide in software right, what you think you might need to sit down in a lawyer's office to do. Well. That's pretty powerful as a starting point because software is really, once you've written it, it's really, really cheap to operate. And so they can offer 
their software, right, in the form of an app, to enable consumers to create a will or a trust for free. And first of all, I was drawn to that as just, you know, a company that's doing something good, right, as an impact in the world, right? If tomorrow succeeds, right, at what they're trying to do, then lots more people will have a will. And that's actually a really good thing, especially if they can do so self-serve using the software to create it. Now, take that as I've sort of spent time with the team and gotten more involved, you know, really interesting. Um, I think that their core value proposition is not, we're going to create a will for you. It's actually, we're going to help give you peace of mind. So part of it might be helping you figure out whether you even need a will. Part of it might be non-financial aspects that people kind of don't realize uh, that they ought to have. Like if something happens and you pass away before it's time, who's going to take care of the kids, right? If you and your spouse, right, get into a car accident, right, together, and you both pass at the same time, do you want the state and sort of the default rules that your state has to figure out who's going to get custody, be guardian, and so on, right? Or do you want to just spell it out, right? And then all, as well as, for that matter, contact the people, right, and facilitate those conversations around, look, if something happens, will you be their guardian, right? And again, that's part of what the software does, right? It helps with that communication. So all that, uh, you know, I was just sort of drawn to it. And then look, it's, it is a business that they're building, and it, it so happens, part of the, the idea. Once we've helped you with a will or a trust or something along those lines, that certainly provides a natural segue, right, as well as some appropriate information and a channel and hopefully some brand permission. Say, well, look, hey, we just helped you write up your will. We noticed you didn't say anything about having life insurance for any beneficiaries, you know, or disability insurance or what have you, here's what we might suggest for you, right? And, you know, the tomorrow folks uh, are licensed across 50 states to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, that's potentially, you know, really good and, and useful for those same consumers. Um, and they can make more appropriate recommendations. And, you know, we hope that that's good for the company as well. So it can keep providing more and more services, you know, through software for free to the consumer. So they're kind of playing in both worlds. They're kind of a fintech company and kind of an insure tech company in one. That's right. I mean, the, the will and trust and related things like that are a good entry point. And you're seeing a, a number of business models like that. I referenced Credit Karma earlier, right? They obviously do that. I've, uh, I think I've gone on record saying within the next, I'd say three years, you'll see a company, I believe, offer a 23andMe style gene testing for free, right? And they will do that in part because the cost curve, right, where the cost of doing so is coming down so fast that it'll be feasible. And it'll be an entry point, and they'll have to be very transparent about it, but it'll be an entry point for making offers to the consumer that relate to things that might show up on their genetic report. And as long as they do that sort of with full transparency and, and overtly and and full consent, I think there's actually an interesting business model to happen there too. But you're seeing these sort of, we'll give you something for free that you previously had to pay for. And the quid pro quo is right that, you know, in a transparent way, we're going to make offers to you that uh, you might actually find more relevant and useful in part because we have that information through the product. Right. Asking people to share intimate data, like, you know, who would you want 
to take care of your children should you pass away, or your own personal DNA makeup. These are super intimate things. And sharing those in exchange for help to maximize or minimize your liability or maximize your opportunities, or maybe even your health in your example that you just mentioned. That's right. And, and again, I think there are ways to do it which are creepy and inappropriate. Right, right, but sure. But I think there are ways to do it that are a elegant and a win-win. And I, again, I point to Credit Karma as the example from FinTech, right, where I think that that team, right, has done so in a very transparent, non-obtrusive, non-creepy way. And by the way, like, when they see my credit score is kind of uh, down in the dumpster, they're not going to waste my time right, recommending the you know, uh, ultra-platinum card that I'm going to get declined for anyway. Right? But if I have credit in the dumpster and I still want to get a credit card, they're going to you know, help me find the one that I have a good shot at getting approved for. Right? That's actually real value add using the data about me, even if it's sort of adverse data about me. Right. They can still be helpful in ways that other companies might not. Yeah. And here right now, we're talking about multiple companies that are found at InsureTech. You talked about uh, Tomorrow. Uh, you talked about Credit Karma, who actually presented this past year. That really leads us back into the InsureTech conference itself and all the companies that can be learned about during that conference. So really, why don't we talk a little about that conference? When, when is the next InsureTech conference? Uh, the next InsureTech conference is September, September 23rd through 25th, once again at the MGM in Las Vegas. I'm sure as an entrepreneur, you are delighted and probably a little surprised with what's happened with your conference. Let's talk a little bit about that. Did you foresee that you would have 6,000 people attending in two years? We have been pleasantly startled by the excitement, the energy, and the sheer number of people coming. Been thrilled with the quality of people. We, we always say it is quality, which matters much more than quantity. In our first year, we said, look, if we can get at least 600 people showing up, that'll feel pretty good, right? Particularly if they're the right quality people, good balance between investors and entrepreneurs and the industry executives. We had 1,500 people the first year. We were a little worried about the fire marshal coming by. The following year, which is just over a year ago now, we had 3,500 people. And, and that was, um, you know, will always be memorable for me because the conference last year in 20, October 2017 was just hours after the terrible mass shooting down the Las Vegas Strip from us. So that was something where uh, we really had to make some, some decisions on the fly about how to manage that. But I think while the, the atmosphere was certainly somber, I still think it was a productive conference for the 3,500 people who were able to, to get in. And then we had just shy of 6,000 people last month as well. So you know, I think we'll continue to grow uh, as the industry itself and, and excitement grows in it. But yeah, it's... Um, it's really taken off and um, 
we we certainly like to think of it as the go-to conference, right? If you're going to go to one insure tech conference, I hope this is the one that people choose. There's lots of different ways that you could look at that. You know, what message is it sending to you? What message is it sending to the insurance industry? I mean, literally exponential growth that this conference has seen, I think says a lot about our industry, the insurance industry. And how do you read that? What's the message that you're seeing inside of the way it's taken off? So what I think is most interesting and maybe most indicative is the participation from the industry executives themselves. Uh, So we had some decent balance in the first year, but no surprise, it was particularly heavy with the startups, good showing from the VCs out there, and you know certainly had a decent showing from the industry executives. But I think it's really now as a reflection of the industry itself being very aware and excited and really the question of InsureTech being a board-level conversation. Right? It's, it may not be the most important question on topic for an insurance company right, or a reinsurer or broker, but it is certainly now you know, on the, the short list of key questions. Right? I, I think that AM Best, for instance, has started to highlight sort of insure tech as you know, a question and a topic when thinking about the resiliency of the companies that they're looking at. Right? So as it's become that kind of board level topic, no surprise, you know, everyone in the C-suite and elsewhere wants to make sure they have their finger on the pulse right, from a you know, awareness and education perspective, and that they have the opportunity to have those one-on-one conversations with their peers at other companies, as well as with the you know, founders of the startups themselves. And I, I like to hope, as a former VC now, I like to hope that the, um, the industry executives also tap the investor community really as a source of insight and, and perspective that may be added to them. So I think that's, the, that's really what's, what's most interesting to watch. Now, I'll tell you what I think is going to become most interesting at the conference and, and really impacting you know, the intersection of InsureTech and the industry. And I think that's the companies that are not in insurance and are not InsureTechs showing up. Right. Uh, and showing up in a bigger and bigger way. So, for example, so for example, so two examples. One, I was happy to have Credit Karma on stage at the conference. And I, I know I've, I've referenced Credit Karma a couple of times. I'm, I'm not that obsessed with them, truly. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, Credit Karma is one of the a winning fintech company, 80 plus million users. And, you know, they use the conference to announce the launch of some new product and sort of customer experience around auto insurance, right? I think that's actually a pretty big deal, whether you're uh, someone else in the personal line distribution or if you're a carrier, like, okay, there's, it opens up new possibilities, right? Offense and defense. Another example, Groe, G-R-O-H-E. So I'm at risk of uh, mispronouncing their name. It's a German company in the uh, sort of high-end plumbing side of the world. Right. They are, I don't think they would call themselves an insure tech and, nor an insurance company, but they came right, and presented and, and showed off their wares because insurance is an important application as they sort of embed more and more technology into their plumbing offerings. That's a great example. I mean, we saw a lot of the water, you know, the water 
prevention devices on the expo floor. Here's one for you. And we had an opportunity to speak to them. Apple. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Apple had their own mini event where they could show off how they are looking to serve the insurance industry, startups and incumbents alike. Right. Uh, obviously, they are creating a great deal of technology there. You know, my, my take on this, the, the way I like to say it is many of these non-insurance companies, and Apple is a good example, want to be in the supply chain, right? They want to be serving the insurers, the reinsurers, the brokers, the claims providers. And I think that is impactful, right, and interesting. I think that it's also key to, to have an eye on who are the, the companies out there who want insurers in their supply chain and sort of flipping on its side who's going to own the customer. Like Credit Karma. Like Credit Karma, you know, maybe like some of the, the auto manufacturers, for instance. You know, I, I think that there's perhaps some of the tech titans out there. Keep an eye, and I say this especially pointed at the insurance incumbents, uh, although applicable to some extent to the insure tech startups too. Keep an eye, not just on who's trying to um, enter your supply chain, but who is looking for you to be part of theirs. That's where some of the most interesting action is going to be. We see in the latest iOS, there is a measuring device in tools. And when we saw that, you know, as claims people, <laughs> taking measurements is critical, right? And so when we saw that Apple now has this measuring device on there, it led us to believe that, you know, they're thinking about how can they be more involved in this? How can they play more in our space? And, uh, you know, we know that you've talked about tech titans. Right. And that really leads us down that, that question. We talk about Apple. Uh, we talk about Amazon. In fact, we read where Amazon and travelers have just partnered together to put uh, smart devices into insured homes. Uh, you know, is, is that something we need to be worried about? Do we need to be worried about the tech titans taking over the market and having all the data? So I don't know that I'd be worried about them having all the data, though they certainly do have some interesting data. I would say, yes, it is something to at least monitor. It's at least something that um, you want to be thinking about and not be caught flat-footed if they start to make you know, aggressive moves. So I do find Amazon, of course, Amazon is interesting, right? How could it not be? But um, what are the moves that makes it most interesting? What are the, the signs that maybe they're buying some optionality? So we had the CEO of Ring, which makes the smart doorbells, uh, and actually really brilliantly designed smart doorbells, I have to say. I, I'm a user of one, and just the pure like user interface and user, ease of use of it uh, out of the box impressed me. But we had the CEO founder of Ring as one of our speakers back in October of 2017. So just over a year ago. And then um, early this year, Amazon announces they're buying them for around a billion dollars, right? And you know, kudos to the uh, ventures team at American Family, which I think made an investment in the company, probably did their Series A. I think that they've probably got some good credibility right now within the company. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think why? It begs the question, right? Even for Amazon, plunking down a billion dollars for a startup is um, you know, a decent chunk of change. So you have to ask why, right? What does it mean? And it could mean different things, right? So I, I don't pretend to know with full confidence what does it mean that Amazon 
bought Ring. What I will say, right, of course, one component of it is delivery into the home is very important, right, for Amazon's core retail business. So perhaps that is the rationale for it. Perhaps that's the only rationale. On the other hand, Ring makes a suite of devices and sort of the software with those devices that could be relevant for monitoring the home. Hmm. Well, once you start to talk about that, monitoring the home and actually getting inside the home from a um, sort of data collection and, and monitoring perspective, well, maybe that's an opening for insurance, right? Maybe they, there's some optionality for them in that. So I, I think keeping an eye on what big moves some of these companies are making, you know, I, I think about um, Google and auto insurance, right? And I kind of think that uh, there's a head fake going on there, right? Google you know, seemingly tried to do full-on customer gen comparison engine, retreated from that. Oh, okay, we're safe. Even Google can't attack that part of auto insurance. But um, I think Waymo is actually Google's interesting entry point into auto insurance, as an example, right? Because if Google, through Waymo, is driving the car, right, or driving 80% of the miles of your car, then they're actually in a better position than an insurance company might be to underwrite those miles. That's really interesting, right? You know, the Chinese tech titans are very impressive and very ambitious. You know, Alibaba, Tencent, JD, and each one has basically lit up an entire financial services arm. Right? Um, Rakuten, right? The sort of uh, Amazon of Japan. They are now you know, real live active insurance company, right, through some subsidiaries. So it's interesting to watch if you want to monitor it. And my sort of big thesis here is, you know, in the battle between the incumbents and the tech titans, you know, watch what happens to the insure techs. They may actually be what tips the balance of the scales in favor of one or the other. Let's talk about claims for a minute. We at our company, we're using testing and implementing a number of different claims tools, InsureTech claims tools. We saw several InsureTechs at your conference from the claims side. What's your thought on the claim side of InsureTech? Is it mature? Is that where a lot of the big opportunities are? What's your thought there? Yeah, I don't think that it's mature yet. I do believe that claims is one of the ripe areas particularly as you look sort of short to medium term for application of technologies. So a few examples, you know, certainly the example around deploying a fleet of drones rather than a fleet of people on ladders. And look, I don't pretend to be an expert on the claim side specifically, but it sure does seem intuitive that there's going to be certain situations where using a flying camera is better for doing certain kinds of observations, data collection, monitoring, and, you know, probably safer too, quite frankly, for the claims process itself. You know, and, and you've seen some of the giants in the industry, right, at least, at least put out their press releases about how they are deploying drones in some volume and scale. I think about Allstate as an example, where I know I've seen uh, their press release. I think that in, you know, you're starting to outsource a bit more of the claims process to the consumer, right? And if you think about uh, auto accidents, right, where are there situations instead of sending out an adjuster, you can have 
the consumer themselves essentially collect all the data that the adjuster would need, right? Because the smartphone is now everywhere and all of the information can be uploaded to the cloud where a centralized adjuster can review it and figure out if it's you know, sufficient information to resolve the issue. Now, even seeing uh, situations where people are talking about deploying sort of on-demand adjusters. And what I mean by that is, it's interesting, I've started to see examples where I believe Lyft, right, more than Uber, for instance, is focused on making their drivers a kind of distributed on-demand workforce for things like claims as much as for, you know, food delivery. Because every Lyft driver, right, has a car and has a camera, right, in their hand. And uh, so, that, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing. And then flying machine learning, right, which is the, uh, you know, less uh, fancy term for artificial intelligence, applying machine learning to sort of navigate a bunch of unstructured data is, again, sort of interesting, especially in the claim side. So, uh, you know, I think there's a company or two out there trying to resolve, look for fraud in workers' comp claims, right? So, hey, you, you filed a workers' comp claim, you said you got a bad back, and there you are posting to Facebook about your, your great ski trip in Aspen. Hmm. You know, that's intuitive, and it's hard for people to scan through enough information, but it's not necessarily as hard for a uh, small server farm to scan through all that. So, um, you know, I think there's actually lots of opportunities. And unlike underwriting, where it's really hard to make changes and to to do a pilot and to test out whether some new capability can actually be helpful. You know, it's not impossible, but it is tough in the underwriting part of the value chain. In claims, I think it actually is, is much easier and much quicker to try out some point solution, right? call their API, citing back to earlier, and see if it can add some value to the existing process. Do you find that carriers struggle to adopt. I mean, it seems to me you're more from the VC end and the insure tech end. Most all of our customers are carriers. And we find that carriers kind of struggle to adopt. They struggle to adopt new technology. They're slow to adopt new technology. You said earlier, they're five years behind their financial counterparts. Do you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think that is? Is it just risk aversion? I don't think that it's risk aversion. I think it is broadly true that they're often slower than you want them to be, and they're often slower than they want to be, right? And so what does that mean, that they're slower than they want to be? Well, for one thing, back to this question of their own technology infrastructure, their existing legacy tech stack, right? It's not so easy to just, you know, rip that out. It's not so easy to just plug in some interesting new capability, right, that might add a ton of value because their existing infrastructure may not necessarily support trying out that, that potential best-in-class solution, right? That takes me back to, you know, the carriers and the other incumbents in the industry, you know, need to at least be, be finding ways to API-ify their own backbone, at least, so they can plug into new solutions through API as well. But that's not an overnight, that's not an overnight process to be able to even plug into third parties' capabilities like that. And then I think there's also cultural aspects. There's lots of very talented folks in the insurance industry 
No question about it. I wouldn't suggest otherwise. And right, it's not necessarily an industry which has attracted people who are looking to absolutely shake up how things get done. Right? By its very nature, right, the insurance industry attracts people who are drawn to excellence at risk management. Right? And that's not the same as necessarily drawing a talent pool who's attracted to risk-taking. So I think it's in the same way that many of the startups in this industry right, need to make sure they're building up the muscles for risk management right, in order to be good partners. I think that the incumbents also need to be building up the muscle around risk-taking and success stories. I mean, I'm particularly fond of Markel, which is in my backyard here. I live in Richmond, Virginia. I think Markel has been doing some really interesting things in ways to enable themselves to do some risk-taking. In fact, in part because I think they're very, they're appropriately conservative on parts of their business. That lets them sort of have other parts of their business where they can make intelligent, take on intelligent, smart risks, right? I cited American Family as an example earlier, right? How they use their venture arm Right, to take on risks, investing in ring. I think there are ways to do it. I think it, it does require building up that muscle, though, from a sort of internal culture perspective as well. I agree. I think that culture has a lot to do with it. The more culturally conservative companies tend to have a little bit more difficult time than ones that have leadership who are willing to be more aggressive. Because at some point in time, you have to take a step and take a chance and take some risk. And some leaders just struggle to get there. That's our experience anyways. And in working with various carriers, and we work strictly on the claims side, we find everybody's interested to talk about InsureTech. Everybody wants to be involved in it, but they don't necessarily want to take the chance to get there. So it's a very interesting time for us in the little pond we play in. It's a wonderful time to be in this industry right now, I have to say. Because in our pre-call, we went over the quote that things will probably change less in the next few years than we expect, but more in the next 10 years than we expect. And I think we can all agree to that. I think so. Okay. I can't even begin to thank you enough for your time and your energy today. And I also want to thank you for what you're doing with your conference and all the things and all the opportunities that that represents. I thank you for that and Jay as well. And we look forward to hopefully carrying on this conversation in the future. And if nothing else, seeing you next year in Las Vegas. All right. Very good. Okay. Thanks, Caribou. Thank you. Big thanks to Caribou Honig, our guest today. We keep saying that we're honored and privileged to have him, and that really is totally the case because he's a big shot. And for him to make the time and to put out the effort to get ready and to be with us today was terrific and a privilege, and we can't thank him enough for being with us today. Right. He has so much information about where our industry has gone and where it's going. It was really interesting to hear him talk about his past, but then all the companies that he's been associated with and he mm -hmm. knows about. It was a very eye-opening experience to listen to him. Mm -hmm. He had no end of insight into this business. I realized as we went through the conversation that his perspective from being a VC for as long as he has, right, right. that kind of 
probably very, I've never been a VC, so I don't exactly know what that means. However, he was very analytical, had the ability to kind of grasp the big picture of things. Right, right. And to see broadly, it was impressive. I, I would imagine that he's, he's privileged to a lot of conversations with a lot of these venture capitalists and, and startup companies and then tech giants, as he calls them, you know, to really see where the future is going because everybody has to lay out their roadmap to them. Mm-hmm. Everybody is telling them, hey, we'd like you to be a part. We want your, your opinion on our company. Mm-hmm. This is where we are and then this is where we're going. So he gets to build a lot of roadmaps and see what a lot of companies want to do. I'm personally very excited about InsureTech next year. As I said, I've been twice. Uh, Next year is back at the MGM, and it'll be our third year. Me and you were actually able to go this year. And there at InsureTech, it is not just a conference where they talk to you. It is a time for you to really get to know the companies, get to know the players in our space, and get to see their roadmaps for where they're going. We got to talk to Credit Karma last year, and they were on stage, and I am now a member of Credit Karma. I just from Me listening too. to that. It's very neat. I was eligible for, for my credit score yesterday. Right. And it was neat to see how it had changed and right. everything. I think that it would be really interesting to get into some of the boardrooms of these companies. Right. And to see what the roadmap is. Because when I joined Credit Karma maybe a year ago, and it's a long story about how that happened, but I did, I never thought that something that I'm joining for my credit score, which is really what I needed, could sell me insurance. You know, now... It's easy to understand, but at that point in time, I wouldn't have thought that Credit Karma would reach out to me and say, hey, you know, here's an insurance offer. But of course, that makes sense. And, and, you know, I think about not just Credit Karma, but I think about, you know, all the companies who are interested in expanding their, their verticals. Those who do a certain task or a certain business operation now who are thinking, hey, because we do one thing, right, you know, we could take uh, Amazon because we sell books and all these things to all these people, we could also maybe get into the insurance or we could get into the home security or we could get into the cloud service because we have so many connections. It's neat to think about all these companies doing that. And Credit Karma is a prime example of, hey, we already had all their data. We already have all these people's information. With two more clicks, we could offer them insurance. Right. And so data is the key. Data is the key. I have your data. Right. You trust me. Right. We've built a relationship based on this free service that I'm offering to you. Correct. Here's other opportunities for us to broaden our relationship. I was recently on a panel with a member from Chubb, and he had recreated the way that they do underwriting for their small commercial. And he said, we already have their data. All I need is two more pieces of information and I can underwrite their property. I don't need 50 questions. I don't need them to give me their name again. I just need two more pieces of data and I can give it to them. And that's what these companies are thinking, ease of use and take the information they already have, don't duplicate it and get them better quotes. Well, like at at, at InsureTech this year, Daniel Schreiber, the CEO of, and founder of Lemonade was there. Right. And he spoke about how they only need to ask a few questions. Correct. Not like a typical insurance application, which has 30 questions or 40 questions or God knows how many. They've figured out the few specific questions using all the data sources that are available to them with a few key questions, they can underwrite a policy. 
and the studies show that people lose their attention so quick. I've filled out numerous applications right. for email lists right. or you know activities I'm going to do, and I'm thinking, why do you need all this information? It's not even worth it to me to give you all this. I'm done. Or, I don't want to mess with it. Right, right. I was at doctor's appointment recently, and on the form, you know, that you fill out before the appointment, they asked for my social security number. Mm -hmm. I didn't put it in, but I thought to myself, why in the world are you? Well, that's just because they're casting this big wide net. Big wide net. Give me all the data. Right. Give it to me all. And maybe I'll need it and maybe I won't, but at least I'll have it. That's right. So I thought it was interesting, the conversation about the tech titans. Yes. And about Amazon buying Ring. And that makes complete sense that they would buy Ring so that a driver for Amazon or UPS or FedEx can through whatever kind of code and whatnot, but through having a ring on your front porch, they can leave a package inside of your house instead of leaving it on your doorstep. Right. Great idea. Plus, it also occurred to me, I'll bet you that it's one of the ways that strategically that Amazon is going to compete with Nest and Google's acquisition of Nest a few years ago. Okay. And Nest continues to build out smart home devices. And we know, I mean, about Amazon and Alexa. So there's a whole ecosystem that's being formed right. and, and I, built. I love Nest. I'm a Nest user. And that's really what I've bought into a lot of the Nest devices. I also think that the Ring purchase with Amazon is twofold. One, allowing for packages to be delivered safer, but then also monitoring packages that are on the porch to eliminate the the thought of theft. Uh, right. So if we do leave the packages there and somebody sees that they have a ring or a video doorbell, they're not as likely to take those packages. Right, because they're going to get recorded taking right. in the act. And it really helps the whole investigation. So if you have a high-end computer device that was taken from your front porch, Amazon says, well, you also have a ring. Why don't we research this and maybe we can track that package down? Well, I think that we were successful today in kind of setting the stage of what InsureTech is. We didn't ask that question or probe that question because we didn't think that people understood it, but we just wanted to create a common place that we could start from, a common definition that we could have, and a common place that for our listeners that we could all work from together as we move forward. Yeah, and, and really who is better to start that conversation than the godfather of insured tech?